it's Monday. We hope that you are happy and healthy and we welcome you to the Religious Studies Project. My name is Brianne Fallon and I'm with David McConaughey, straight from Massachusetts and still under isolation here <laughs> due, <laughs> due to COVID-19, um, getting up all in our business and making all of our lives uh, move online, teleworking, remote working, potentially losing jobs. We feel that uh, everybody is just having a rough time right now. And so we're happy to bring you a little bit of relief uh, about that today, right, Bree? Yeah, we're hoping that this podcast will break the monotony of whatever isolation you are in right now. And we're very excited about this episode. What do we have today, Dave? Today we have an episode about an iconism and challenging the way in which the normative stance of an iconism is presented in Christianity, Judaism, and Islam with Brigitte Meyer and Terry Stordallen by Candace Mixon. So take it away. All right, everyone. Well, I am Candace Mixon and I am here with Terry Stordallen and Bridget Meyer. Good morning from me and good afternoon to you all. Hello. Hello, Candace. <laughs> Yes, and welcome. Um, I'm so excited to be talking with these fine scholars on the topic of an iconism, and we'll learn all about sort of what that is and kind of theories behind it um, and how it matters for the, the study of religion. Um, I will just note that um, my interest in this as, a, as an interviewer is also invested in my own academic interest. I'm a Islamic studies scholar who works on contemporary visual and material culture related to Shia Islam, and especially regarding Fatima, the daughter of the Prophet Muhammad, and how she's um, conceptualized visually and uh, materially in, in Iran. Um, so I've traveled there and sort of seen uh, images of her and the family of the Prophet kind of all together in the, the fabric of contemporary Iranian society. Um, and then some of those images are, are lessening a bit now, and that's due to all kinds of different um, pressures and reasons. But certainly the visual culture is there. The images are there. The spirit of all of that is there. So I'm so excited to talk with you all about um, your research in this field. I'm excited too. On this. <laughs> all right, wonderful. Um, so part of the the rationale for getting you all together is that you did uh, co-edit a book together called "Figurations and Sensations of the Unseen in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam." Um, so I was wondering if each of you could just mention um, a bit about your own research and maybe what connected you with wanting to uh, publish and, and collect the articles in figurations and sensations of the unseen in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Okay, you want to go first, Birgit? Okay, I can do that. Okay, I'm uh, Birgit Meyer. I have been trained as an anthropologist and scholar in religious studies, and I have been conducting uh, research on Christianity in uh, Africa for a long time. And uh, in this research, uh, I also have focused on mission societies, mission societies from Germany, active on the West African coast, who, of course, uh, in trying to convert local populations, in a way, produce ideas about idolatry, uh, fetish worship, and all this. So indigenous worship was recast as being idolatric and strongly materially focused, whereas then missionary Protestantism was profiled as um, 
religiosity that was uh, devoted uh, to the interior, devoted to uh, book reading and all that. And I have long wondered how to come to terms with this clash uh, uh, about uh, indigenous objects and the denigration of indigenous religious traditions as uh, idolatry. I noticed with my move into uh, religious studies that there is some kind of dearth with uh, regard mm -hmm. to taking seriously the material dimension of um, religion, which with uh, Talal Assad, I would mm -hmm. attribute to a post-enlightenment uh, Protestant bias. And I have been struggling, uh, not only empirically, but also conceptually, to create more room for material objects and other material media in the study of religion. And it was in this context that I met Terje at a conference, in fact, on media and mediation at Oslo University. And there we noticed that although he comes from a different background, he will soon talk about that, we had uh, a number of um, shared um, concerns. And so this ultimately led us to uh, delve in this uh, project together. But maybe Terje, you can first say uh, more about your background. Yes. Uh, well, I'm Talia Stordalen, and I should start with saying I'm very happy to be part of this uh, podcast. Uh, I was trained as a classical scholar of Hebrew Bible, Old Testament literature, and ancient New Eastern religion. So there is a lot of language issues and literature issues, of course. But for a decade or so, I have been headed out of the, uh, you could say, uh, disciplinary silo <laughs> that, that we live in down there <laughs> in, in Hebrew Bible studies <laughs> and looking more at the at the wider uh, landscape around. Um, and I've headed a few um, international cross-disciplinary enterprises. One of them was Religion and Pluralist Societies, which was the host for the conference that, that Birgit mentioned before. And um, I've been Really, it's been an eye-opener for me to come to religious studies, to come to anthropology in particular, and see uh, it's possible to reflect outside of the scholarly tradition and see new aspects. And I think that's what we're doing in this volume. We have a lot of different disciplinary traditions meet and converse, and what emerges is a somewhat surprising for all of us, I think, a somewhat surprising view of the topic that we had at hand. Of course, down in the disciplinary silo, uh, anachronism is um, a, a given. That is just something that everybody thinks is a fact in in he old ancient Hebrew Bible religion. But uh, it turns out it's much more complicated than that. Well, and we can think about how pervasive it is. I don't know what kinds of courses you all teach, but I'm in a religious studies program or religious studies department, and I often you know, teach introduction to Islam or, you know, just something very, you know, introductory and wide ranging related to Islamic studies. And almost always the first thing that my students say, if I start talking about um, Muhammad or images or something like that, they just say, well, that's not allowed, right? Um, and I don't know if that's, you know, been your experience also in the classroom and not just your research, I wonder. Oh, very much in the classroom, and, and not just the classroom. Outside the classroom, this uh, perception is very pervasive as well. Everyone talking about ancient Judaism or Islam mm -hmm. thinks that this, this is the case. Evidently, it's not. It's not that simple. 
Yes, and likewise, uh, speaking from Calvinist uh, Holland, I'm teaching uh -huh. Utrecht, and in the Utrecht Dome, we have also uh, one of, of the um, ev very, very strong, much reproduced evidences of the iconoclasm of Calvinism that was uh, unleashed um, in the late uh, 16th century, a totally smashed uh, um, altar image. And so often this is taken as proof that, that truly, from a Calvinist perspective, there is no right uh, for Christians to use uh, images. But of course, all these standpoints are far too um, uh, simplistic. And uh, of course, one concern of our volume is to show very simply that empirically this is not the case and that though we do notice, of course, some reservations with regard to images and visual representation in the three Abrahamic traditions, at the same time, we encounter a lot of image-making practices and uh, images that may give, give rise uh, to all kinds of debates. But nonetheless, uh, there is a whole stock of uh, visual materials that is there. Concerning Islam in our volume, we also feature an article by um, Christiane Gruber, who also mm -hmm. has been writing extensively about mm -hmm. uh, the circulation of images of Mohammed uh, across the uh, Islamic uh, Islamic world. You may be familiar with her work. Oh yeah, definitely. I um, definitely sort of work with and sort of been in conversation and uh, with her about some of these images. So um, yeah, it was great to see that representation in the volume. Um, but yeah, just sort of going back to these issues. So we're, we've started to dance around the idea of, you know, some Protestant biases and some um, sort of shaking up the image question across these three traditions. But I wondered if one or both of you could talk to us a little bit more about what you've seen or how you've pitched it in the, in the volume, which is as a as a normative belief, um, because that's something that we always, in religious studies, we want to interrogate, you know, what are these normative or quote-unquote orthodox beliefs that seem to take precedent, um, and maybe just conceptualize that that idea for me that um, aniconism has become a normative uh, practice in both the academy and, um, and maybe in your specific subfields. Anything more you could say on that? Well, you know, aniconism is a very ambiguous concept to start with. So uh, in, in my disciplinary fields, it's used to denote two very different kind of practices. And one is what, what is called a de facto aniconism, which you then name um, uh, the non-use of figural or symbolic uh, objects in mm -hmm. cult, simply the non-use of the, the absence of them. And the other is the militant aniconism, which is, the, you know, associated with iconoclasm and the destroying of cultic objects, almost all kinds of cultic objects, but certainly uh, objects that are thought to represent a deity. And in, in already this is a distinction that is lost on many people. <laughs> they always think of aniconism as the latter, which uh, in the historical record ev evidently is not the case. Uh, but then you have some normative concepts on top of that. And, and usually in Christian and I think Islamic tradition, very often this goes to the idea that, that figurative media are inferior to words. 
right yeah. so so there is a better more value for you know representing the other side or the unseen as we call it in the volume uh by words and that seems to be a perception that caught on with scholars as well i mean it resonates with the modernist philosophy which which for instance ivan sherwood documents very well in our book um but it doesn't really make sense when you go back and look at the material. I think my my greatest surprise was that I, when when having done the research, I realized that an iconism is just another uh, aesthetic regime. You're still using material media and certain constellations to convey specific things, and it, it's not all that different from a more iconic oriented cult. And that's, of course, interesting. So even if you can notice certain uniconic strands um, in uh, Christian or and Judaic and uh, Islamic traditions, this would not imply to uh, uh, uplift this uniconism into a more general uh, scholarly stance. And what motivated us very much to do this book is to, on the one hand, document, in fact, uh, attitudes towards images, visual regimes at different times and places in these religious traditions. But we also wanted to, uh, in a way, challenge um, the study of religion to move beyond a kind of presumed uh, normative idea that is tied to these uh, religious traditions that somehow images would matter less. And you can find even a kind of normative resuscitation of the second commandment in works, uh, critical works by Bruno Latour and W.T. Mitchell, scholars whose work I value very strongly, mm -hmm. but which I also find um, somewhat limited, uh, perhaps due to some distance um, from um, theology or knowledge about the Old uh, Testament. So in my own uh, article in uh, the first part, I also address Latour's famous introduction to the Iconoclash volume in which he uh, writes about the second commandment and its interpretation uh, and uh, the second commandment in his view stating that humans are not allowed uh, to make any representations. And obviously, this is not at all how this commandment um, would have been uh, understood across time by most of uh, the people who are trying to obey it. So the irony is that even in secular theory form formation that deals in interesting ways with images, we find remnants of normative ideas about uh, the interdiction to use images. And we decided in this volume to work through these things and work towards an approach to visual regimes in which images uh, uh, function uh, by, uh, for example, getting uh, some more inspiration from art history which is yeah. really, I think, a very fertile uh, kind of yeah, cross-disciplinary uh, encounter that stimulated a lot of the scholars uh, in this book. Very yeah, that's a, these are wonderful points. Um, and something that um, I think Terry mentioned, that these are these inclinations to either distrust the image or put it on a lower pedestal are also represented, of course, in the academy as well. So how we produce knowledge, and as um, Birgit, you also mentioned, you know, sort of secular theory, that all of these systems reproduce the idea of 
logo as being the primary method through which we prove that we have knowledge. So dissertations are written in text um, and, you know, visual means or video or other sorts of things might be an accessory or an appendix or some sort of additional thing. Um, But even within the academy, the way that we have our knowledge structured is also um, centered on the written language as the primary and authoritative means. Um, And that's something that often work through with my students, um, considering when we talk about early Islamic history and we think about, um, of course, oral traditions and, and the spoken word. And I know that you have some chapters related to the sound and Islam, for example. Um, but thinking about the um, sort of prevalence that our students and our publics see in the trust that they give the written word over any other means of representation, I think is really um, striking and kind of just shows how pervasive this normative idea of, of anikinism in various ways has mm-hmm. become. Yeah. I think you're right. I think you're very right. And I think actually it relates to uh, our understanding of concepts because we tend to identify words as concepts. We always see the fact that words are media too. So we, there is an underlying sense in our culture that if you, if you can just grasp the concept, you have grasped reality, whereas uh, like material media have more distance and they're more fixed, so they're not so flexible and so forth. Uh, so there is a very fundamental philosophical perception mm-hmm. uh, underlying all of this, and that needs to be challenged properly, I think. Yeah, and I think that uh, for, for me... So in a way to point out that the way in which we have configured research on religion in privileging textual and word-centric approaches and figuring out how these um, approaches are tied, in fact, uh, to perhaps quite hidden normative uh, claims that are grounded in the religious traditions we are then studying. In pointing that out, it is important uh, to see that we need to uh, move beyond this lingering an iconism and develop alternative concepts, but also methods. I'm very much interested in developing uh, a new ways of studying religion. I have been working for quite some time from a mediation um, approach, and I would say that in a way religions um, develop different kinds of media, so texts as well as images, as well as uh, uh, buildings, as well as even food. And as scholars, we need to be able to analyze these kinds of media, also, of course, by engaging with scholars who have a lot of knowledge um, about them. And in this volume, our attempt was very much to unpack, in a way, uh, visual media and processes of figuration and imagination in conversation with scholars in uh, art history, and in particular with a particular German strand in art history, which is called uh, Bildwissenschaft, as developed by scholars as um, Hans Belting, Christiane Kruse, who also has uh, an article in our um, uh, volume, uh, Gottfried Böhm and, uh, and others. And, and you might add to all that also um, an interest which is brought on by 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 you, Birgit, um, a focus on the sensation, the use of the human sensorium here. Uh, and in order to get a grasp of what religion does to people, 
or what people do with religion, you need to see all these senses playing together and all the different media form a, a sort of totality. And that's what, you know, we should see as scholars of religion when we approach these phenomena, not just the concepts that some religious elites or scholarly elites would uh, condense from all that. Yeah, exactly. And I think that is how we try to broaden here towards uh, figurations and sensations uh, of the unseen. And it is these two strands. So the figuration of the unseen, the mediation of, of the unseen, uh, which is, of course, projected through these uh, uh, figurations and becomes tangible through them and the ways in which this process of making tangible and unseen also uh, calls on uh, particular kinds of sensations. And we argue that different religious traditions may well be compared and distinguished by looking at the ways in which um, they offer figurations of an unseen and represent and mediate it and the different, different sensorial profiles that are engaged in uh, doing so. And I think this is a kind of program that uh, joins the different um, chapters in this, uh, this volume. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's really wonderful. I was thinking um, both about, you know, your sort of insistence on media as mediation. And I know that's a very obvious sort of connection for the word to make, but I think saying it like that, so saying media as mediation, I think really helps us draw that point home that it is some sort of communication and whether that image is between um trying to figure out how to represent God, a God, some sort of deity, or some other expression of a religious practice, feeling, etc., that that media is the communicative work there. So um, I just really like that sort of repeating that and thinking through that word. Um, so with that, I wondered, I mean, uh, Terry, I know in your chapter, you mentioned um, the challenges of a logocentric ideology and the distrust of a medium to be able to represent or perhaps mediate a deity. Um, so I wondered if in your specific example, if you could tell us a little bit more about the idea of distrusting a media to be able to work enough to represent um, a deity or some other religious idea. Okay, I can do that. I will need to, to get a little specific then and, and uh, you know, chart some of the uh, presumptions that I, I work on. Sure, yeah. I mean, it would just be nice to have a little bit more of a, maybe a detailed case study that we can sort of think through um, okay. as we get these more, you know, generic and broader sweeps that we've made um, or that you all have made in the, in the volume. So that'd be wonderful. Okay. Well, uh, it's uh, an accepted uh, view among scholars that there are different strata, different strands of biblical Hebrew literature, and uh, they're not all equally, you know, strange to to figure, figurative representations of the deity. So I uh, decided I'll take the the most restrictive uh, <laughs> strand, the Deuteronomistic strand, as we call it. And they're the ones that give these um, bans on images that have become so normative in, in scholarship. Now, they have edited uh, a long line of literature, which we call the Deuteronomistic history. And in this uh, work, you have earlier sources. So you can, in that work, see how they interacted with 
less iconoclastically minded uh, ideologies. I thought that might be a good uh, case study. So I took um, a narrative on the building of the Temple of Solomon. I'm not saying that temple ever existed, but it's very easy to imagine that temple mm -hmm. from the account given in the biblical record. In fact, it has been imagined time and over <laughs> and still is uh, around the world. So um, you would expect if these people really were as uniconic as we think they should be, they would make sure to present for us an image of a temple where you know, imagery and symbolizations played no role at all, almost mm -hmm. like a Calvinistic chapel or something like that. Mm -hmm. But but the fact is, uh, their account in um, in First Kings, the book of First Kings, chapter six to eight, is full of figurations. There are palms, there are lions, there are cherubs, there are pomegranates. And moreover, there is an architect, very clear architectural symbolism. So you have one stage and then you go on to the second stage and they go on to the third stage. So, I mean, it's full of non-verbal media. <laughs> the, the, the presence of the deity in this imagined temple is not verbal at all because when you get to the inner sanctuary, it is a complete silence. Right? There is no image. There also is no word. So I came to see this as a sort of expression of, of a conviction that you, you simply cannot grasp this deity, and words do not grasp that deity either. And I thought this was a very, <laughs> to me, a very instructional view into something that I thought I already knew all about. Interesting. But the yeah. interesting thing, Claire, is that you do not take this as proof of an iconism, but mm -hmm. you, that you develop this case to show the importance of all kinds of figural representations in evoking a sense of an unseen that uh, is withdrawn. And I found that very interesting. And that is, of course, a theme that we find in other articles in the book as yeah. well. For example, in uh, Heike Behrens' um, piece on aesthetics of um, of withdrawal, which I find very interesting. So she also makes a point that uh, she, she works on the Swahili coast, where, um, of course, there are certain restrictions uh, among Muslims with regard to the use uh, of images, but at the same time, images themselves are being used in order to um, uh, conceal certain things. So the image itself may be employed as a medium for Uh, concealment, and I think these are the more fine-tuned aspects, in a way, of uh, working with images that we try to to focus on in our book. We really want to get away from this uh, all too simplistic question of yes or no images are allowed. Yeah. So as to look at the working with images, and I very much uh, I, I learned a lot from uh, Terje's uh, piece in particular because Terje, you show the importance of the iconic. In producing a sense of something that withdraws, uh, that is withdrawn from uh, view, right? Yes. Uh, I think uh, through my piece, but even more through Heike Behrens piece, we arrive at the view of an iconism as a, as a regime, as an aesthetic regime. Hmm. And it, it makes use of all the media and all the opportunities that you have in other uh, 
regimes, but it just has a particular profile. So th that means that we should go back and look at all these different solutions and the different traditions and see them more or less on a pair and describe how they actually employ the media and the sensation in different ways. Mm. And that is, that is yeah. the point. Yeah, yeah that, thank you so much for that detailed um, look at your, at your case study there and sort of rethinking you know, something that sounds familiar. And that's always the task is, you know, how can I interrogate, again, something that I'm taking for granted? And again, that's the, the whole point of, of rethinking the normativity of aniconism. Yeah. So um, thank you for sharing that. Um, another point that I made sort of was I was reviewing some of these things and thinking through this is you were mentioning um, the shared habitus of, of means of seeing or sound or sort of um, the shared communities that make certain regimes of sensation possible mm -hmm. in religious traditions. Yeah. So I wonder if, if you can mention anything or offer any examples of the shared habitus of, of seeing sensation um, in any of the religious traditions you're working with, um, especially related to media or images. Well, I think what, what was very interesting to look even across uh, the Christian tradition on which I'm working um, uh, quite a lot, we have mm -hmm. a very uh, interesting piece by uh, Sonia Luhrmann, a splendid anthropologist who uh, unfortunately passed away uh, last uh, August, and she is an uh, expert just just before uh, just just after our book had come out, and she's oh, wow. an expert on Orthodox Christianity and has uh, offered a fantastic piece about uh, the importance uh, of the icon in these uh, mm -hmm. Eastern, um, Orthodox traditions. And what I found so fascinating here is that uh, the icon is important in a way so as to prevent the human mind, the individual mind, in going astray and depicting God in all kinds of ways. It is especially the two-dimensional icon that is in a way uh, to, to um, control, to check the human uh, uh, imagination and frame it in a particular way. So the icon, in this sense, is uh, definitely part of an aesthetic regime that teaches people to imagine the unseen in a particular synchronized uh, manner, which evolves around the figure of, uh, of the icon. And I thought that this is a really very, very interesting um, example, um, example here. Uh, we, we didn't write this, but I've been thinking of it afterwards. Maybe we want to comment on this. But my impression is that these regimes are all designed in order to intensify uh, certain chosen, you know, experiences and, and and even bodily experiences. So you have, for instance, the one that Evin uh, Nuldeval describes in ancient Rome, using the Baroque technique of contemplation and you know looking at you know, the very very Baroque figures that are there. It's all about you know approaching a center and then releasing the tension at the center. And and that seems to me to be the point, whether you use images or you use them in restrictive sense or you don't use them at all. It's all about heightening the experience when you get to what is perceived to be the central point. Yes, and I think that that is something uh, that I tried even to uh, thematize in uh, preceding work when I developed the notion of a sensational form. 
the sensational forms that are developed within religious uh, traditions to do exactly the job as you have just uh, described it, uh, Terje. And I would say that indeed visual regimes um, yeah, operate in the context of particular sensational forms that uh, develop, uh, um, make tangible the transcendent in certain ways and also organize uh, uh, the access uh, uh, to it in particular ways. And I think that one can very well um, make comparison between uh, religious traditions by focusing in on the different sensational forms and the sensorial regimes within which they um a function. So for me, our volume was also one way of playing out in a way um, uh, of focusing on a particular sensational form that evolves around uh, visuality. Yes. Awesome. Um, yeah, so with that, I was just thinking about um, learning to see or learning to experience um, religion in certain ways through your own through the different traditions um, so that, you know, I work on contemporary Shia Islam and I know that there's some uh, pieces in this volume that, that relate somewhat to that work. Um, but basically thinking about the idea that, that certain Shia Muslims would have the ability to see particular images and respond and know that that's who they are or who they're representing um, based on just the common knowledge and the sort of reinforcing of particular regimes and aesthetic regimes that make those intelligible, that make the make an image of Hussein um, holding the slain uh, commander general um, Qasem Soleimani in his arms as an understandable image that can convey something specific to that audience, where it might not make as much sense to someone who's outside of that audience. And I think that that shared language of images and of media, um, especially within religious traditions, is is so amazing um, to to think through. Yeah, yeah, and we we ha- did we have a piece by Pedram Koshroni, yeah, yeah. Uh, who deals with that, and Gobas uh, a piece also course, deals yeah. uh, with this kind uh, of tradition in part. Perhaps it's also important to to emphasize that in moving in a way. Uh, beyond the idea of a builder verbot and interdiction of images, we really mm-hmm. um, focus on um, the use of images in very different contexts. So it is not uh, necessarily the case, as uh, is of course behind the fear of the image being mistaken for the divine, that all uses of images are intended as representations, as figural representations uh, of God. Usually, if one looks more closely, one sees that there are uh, constant deliberations about the potential of images to allude to the uh, unseen. Actually, uh, the whole charge even of idolatry, of of the mistaking of an image uh, for the deity, is usually a figment of accusation and uh, by no means shared by those making use of these kinds of images. So once one looks more closely, one comes, uh, one is able to access much more sophisticated uh, uses of images and image uh, theologies that move far out of uh, this simplistic charge of uh, idolatry as we find it from uh, uh, conversations and clashes uh, in the Christian uh, uh, tradition or also um, within uh, the Islamic tradition and vis-a-vis 
for example, indigenous traditions in an African context. I We barely came across, or I think we never came across anything like idolatry, pure song, even if there was a profuse use of images uh, made. Um, I think your point, Candace, is, is very interesting uh, from a lot of perspective as well. So, mm -hmm. so these regimes tend to develop certain semiotics. I mean, yeah. uh, so sign systems that will convey certain views and certain values to these spectators. And you need to, to learn the semiotic system in order to understand what is going on. Now, uh, this is, of course, the same also in European painting and in European Christianity at large. Mm -hmm. um, and that That brings us to a point which is also important in this book, um, religious imagery and heritage, cultural heritage, because it becomes part of, uh, you know, a shared cultural property. <laughs> and people may use it and reuse it in different ways. And there is one piece in our book studying the opera Salome and just documenting how many of these original um, semiotic signs are still there. And, but in very subversive ways. So that also helps us understand what's going on with religion and the religious heritage today. And Birgit, this is something that you're very into for the time being. So maybe you want to comment. Well, well I'm interested in, um, in a way, the decline perhaps of Christianity as a living uh, tradition across Europe. But in all this, we should not overlook the fact that uh, Christian images, all kinds of tropes, of course, survive in uh, secular forms. And we believe that uh, with this volume um, that builds in a way on practices of figuration and sensation within living uh, religious traditions, we are also able to identify the afterlives um, of these images uh, in secular context. So we have indeed Ulrike Brunotte's piece on, uh, on Salome. We have... Uh, um, Christiane Kruse, uh, who works um, around um, Michel Wellebeck's uh, Soumission. We have Elsemarie Bukdal, who also um, works on um, modern abstract uh, uh, art uh, and all that. So that is, uh, in fact, the last part of this uh, volume where, where these uh, afterlives of Christian visual mm -hmm. regimes uh, are being addressed. Great. Um, yeah, so thank you so much for, for that, too. And again, the details um, and thinking through the cultural heritage and sort of, yeah, these images being part and parcel to um, how also outsiders see and visualize um, these religious traditions. I mean, there's a reason when people go to you know Florence or different museums in Italy, they absorb and take in all these beautiful um, Christian art forms um, without necessarily understanding the the context that sort of brought those particular art forms to light that would have made a lot of sense for the communities in which they they were born into. Um, so, so on the one hand, we can appreciate the art and the beauty of them, um, but for people within that community, they, they take on a, a different meaning. Exactly. And Christiane Kruse, for example, in uh, an earlier work... Um Wozu mentioned Malen, unfortunately only published in German, she offered a really interesting analysis in a way of the ways in which um, theology and art move together, but also uh, to some degree, um, of course, um, ex expand and extend into each other. So she dis discusses uh, indeed 
all kinds of restrictions with regard to the depiction of the divine with deliberations by artists who say, well, the, the condition for the evocation uh, of the unseen, of the divine, is its mediation via the image. So you see already in uh, medieval uh, uh, times and in the Baroque all kinds of attempts of mobilizing um, images in order to make uh, an invisible uh, visible in uh, the, the framework of uh, the image and at the same time seeking to circumvent uh, charges of idolatry, which would claim that this uh, would amount to uh, representing um, the divine as such. So there is a lot of deliberation about the work of mediation that um, images as media can do in alluding to a kind of unseen without ever fully uh, rendering it uh, present as such. And I, I hope that uh, perhaps reading um, our volume may also alert people that when they uh, watch these uh, masterpieces uh, of art, they can mm -hmm. also embed it in uh, broader um, uh, debates within uh, the Christian realm uh, in this case. Yeah, exactly. Um, great. So I wonder if as we kind of, you know, we've gotten, we've gotten a little bit more specific and then I wonder if we can you know, sort of get closer to wrapping up by thinking um, again more broadly. So back to the points that I brought up at the beginning of the of the interview, um, back to this issue, and I think Terry mentioned it a few times, but, you know, aniconism as just absence, and then anti-iconism or iconoclasm as, you know, no and destruction of images. Um, so I wonder if we can sort of just think through, again, that tension or that conflation and then sort of final approaches to what we can learn for that for going forward in the field of religious studies, um, how you hope that people will take this scholarship and um, either apply it or rethink their own research materials. So perhaps just suggestions or, um, again, kind of detail about this aniconism conflation with anti-iconism, uh, wherever you'd like to, to go from there. <laughs> If I may have uh, a first shot, sure, I, I think uh, there isn't all, from, from from my perspective, there isn't all that much difference between the one and the other. The difference is more in politics than in the use of images. But obviously, uh, setting about to destroy someone else's uh, material basis for religion is a very powerful political move. And setting out to destroy someone for, you know, destroying one's own material basis is another political move. And it cre has created opportunities for religious agents around the world to use the image or non-image question for their political religious purposes. But I think when you look at the practices, it's very diff difficult to see substantial differences between mm -hmm. these. That, that's, that's the religious experts. They would like us to see those distinctions and I think um, demounting the distinctions maybe is one of the services that we can provide with this volume. Yeah, I think I, I would uh, endorse this and say that as scholars we have to be very much aware of the um, epistemic regimes that have been um, guiding our research and we have to be aware to what extent they have been uh, guided in fact by uh, normative assumptions rooted in uh, religious traditions themselves. And we suggest in fact with this uh, volume to move 
beyond uh, the issue of um, the image question uh, per se, uh, to move beyond the issue of uh, un-iconism or anti-iconism versus uh, iconodule attitudes, uh, to move, in fact, uh, towards a broader approach that would look at uh, practices of figuration, at uh, visual uh, regimes in which images may take very, very different uh, roles. And, of course, uh, a Bilderverbot, the interdiction of images, may be one, but there may be many, many other uh, options. And we uh, should, as scholars, be prepared to see all these options as, um, yeah, on a conceptual level, definitely um, uh, equal. I think that this is uh, very important also in relation to debates about images and religion in our contemporary society. There is some kind of uh, irony that uh, nowadays often Muslims um, are, um, are told that, that Christians have no problems uh, with depicting um, images, yeah. with depictions of the divine, anything goes, whereas only Muslims are not able to see this. Now, this is definitely uh, false, uh, uh, of course, mm -hmm. and I hope that through our, in a way, comparative approach, or by taking, in a way, uh, the Abrahamic traditions, and I know that the term is also has comes with its own problems. But by taking these three traditions together, we can get beyond uh, these very um, simplistic uh, ideas as we encounter them now, through which uh, uh, post-Christian secular people distinguish themselves um, from Muslims who are um, told to also um, now be able to become um, iconoclasts. All these are very cheap and simplistic uh, rhetoric, I think, that ask for being further um, unpacked. And in fact, uh, the Figurations and Sensation volume has a sister volume, which is uh, a volume called uh, Ticking Offense, which I co-edited mm. uh, with two colleagues, Anne-Marie Korte and Christiane Kruse, in which we look uh, at um, image uh, wars and contestations around offensive images uh, in the contemporary world. So it may be nice to see the two uh, volumes uh, uh, together. So in addressing, in a way, image questions, uh, conceptually, we just have to broaden our um, scope, I would say. Yes. Wonderful. Um, yeah, the, and Terry, thank you so much for bringing up the politics of um, you know, sort of the utilization of, of when we get to have that power over the images. Obviously, the Buddhas of Bayaman are, are the, you know, often the most iconic um, mm -hmm. example of that, of the destruction of those Buddhas by the um, Taliban and, and thinking about then the power of trying to provoke also. So that sort of taking offense volume you mentioned um, is really interesting there of, of, you know, having images of Muhammad contests out there um, to try to provoke um, some sort of response that would then I don't know, prove something, <laughs> um, yeah. prove all kinds of offensiveness being taken. Um, so the politicalness of when to apply um, anti-iconism, anti-iconism or iconoclasm um, are all so prescient, um, especially right now, in thinking about how relevant um, images are for communicating um, larger political goals, not just religious ones. So thank yeah. you so much for that. Um, any final words you've you've got for us? I mean, this has been really awesome. And I've loved talking to you. And this just makes me more excited to dive in deeper to this book and also the Taking Offense book. But anything other you'd like to mention before we wrap up? Maybe just just a small um, uh, footnote. Uh, yeah. 
But uh, what I try to uh, emphasize in um, my chapter and also my work is, of course, the tremendous um, iconoclastic attacks with regard to indigenous traditions right, that right. have been launched uh, by uh, both Protestant and Catholic mission uh, societies, leading also to the collection of lots of items uh, from Africa and other parts of the world uh, that are now located in mission and ethnographic museums. And of course, the point that this uh, iconoclastic attack is in fact uh, still going on and launched by many Pentecostal um, churches. I'm addressing this uh, to some extent also in my chapter in the book, and I think this should uh, uh, also be remembered when uh, talking uh, about uh, IS and Palmyra or the Bamiyan uh, examples. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Otherwise, I'm I'm just very happy about this uh, uh, conversation. I'm also very happy about this uh, collaboration with Terje and the uh, the other scholars and. Uh, I hope very much that, uh, yeah, this work will trigger debates, will trigger uh, more works. Uh, so in, in many ways, I must say, I'm not yet done with the images <laughs> and the image question. I really hope that with this, we will be able to offer some in incentives to, to broaden the study of religion conceptually and uh, methodologically to indeed uh, uh, research on uh, processes of uh, Figuration and the imagination uh, beyond rather simplistic views. And of course, there is some good work out there. Sally Promi, uh, David Morgan, uh, Chris mm -hmm. Pinney, just to mention people um, in the field of material religion, for example. But I do think that uh, this is really a strand that, uh, yeah, may deserve uh, somewhat more. Uh, attention in our also very heavily media satur saturated and, and image full um, world. So we live just in, in a world with so many images. Often we don't know their provenance. We are not so much aware about of the provenance of our stances with regard to images, our preparedness to believe in them or not, and all that. And I think religious studies has much uh, to say and unpack here. Wonderful. Um, anything other you'd like to note, Terry, before we... No, I think we covered most of that. Yeah, now. yeah. that was a great summation. Um, well, thank you all again. Again, the book that they've been kind of mentioning and we've sort of been uh, dancing through is called Figurations and Sensations of the Unseen in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And it is thankfully open access, which is amazing. So um, people can access it um, sort of regardless of institutional affiliation and library access. So it's very accessible. And we do thank you for making that book so accessible. So on behalf of the Religious Studies Project, thank you all. Well, thank you for having us. Thank okay. you. Thank you. I'm really thankful in this moment when we're all online and so many things have been moved online. The classroom has been moved online and religious worship has moved online. And one of the things that really struck me about it, and and Brie, you can weigh in on this and how it's working in Australia, is that so many of uh, the people that would like to go to church can't go to church right now. They can't go to temple. They can't go to the synagogue. They can't go to the mosque. And they're having to find ways to 
do these things remotely, do them through technology, do them visually. And in the context of today's episode, it really raises a lot of questions about how we are using these media technologies to see um, what's happening in religious spaces. And it, tie, it ties in with all kinds of really important ideas about which elements of ritual really require a participation, what the level of participation is when you mediate it through a technological device. And uh, for a minute, Bree, what do you think about the impact that social distancing is really having on the way in which mediatization is presenting these kind of new visual opportunities for uh, for religion? I think it really sort of taps into something that was sort of underlying that podcast as a whole, which is sort of challenging the idea of a normative stance on aniconism, the idea that there are either images or there are not. And looking at the way that religious worship has moved online in light of COVID-19, the way that we're live streaming, you know, worship online, and that idea of that sort of mediation through technology, it sort of adds all of these shades of grey to the concept of of icons, of authenticity, of engagement. And in this world of technology that has become so vital at the moment, we do have to sort of take a step back and just stop and think about the way that we've, you know, categorised or labelled or understood religious experience in the past. And I think it's something that will continue to change in the coming weeks and months as as COVID still is is out in the world. And we might see some new innovation in the way that technology is mediating these experiences and, and adjusting how we interact with religious imagery. And, you know, this is if you look at the images around the world at the moment, we're seeing religious sites that are completely empty and everybody is engaging through technology. And it's just a completely different way of thinking about the concept of the icon. Um, Dave, what do we have coming up next week? I want to give our listeners something to look forward to amongst the isolation. Um, what do we have coming up? Well, I don't know that it's the the best time for this episode, but it's the episode that has been planned for for quite a while uh, to talk about near-death experiences. Chris Cotter, one of the wonderful founders of the Religious Studies Project and a contributor of so many great episodes, had the opportunity to speak with Jens Schlieder about near-death experiences. And this includes um, things like the Wizard of Oz or Flatliners to a lot of other kind of more technical and medical research about it. And so while everyone might be um, thinking about mortality in some really um, visceral and and intimate ways right now, uh, there are a lot of things that religious studies perspectives have to offer about thinking about death and thinking about near near death narratives. And and we're delighted to present one of the real experts on this topic. And we're so happy that Chris was able to to speak with Jens. Uh, And we will present that for you next time. And until then, I think all that's left for us to say is thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. The RSP is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation, charity number SC047750. Brought to you by founders and editors-in-chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson, and managing editor Thomas J. Coleman III. 
Our features are edited by Marek Sullivan and Rebecca Barrett-Fox, and our opportunities digest by Ella Bock. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock, with audio editing by Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford, sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop, and video editing by Jonathan Tuckett. Don't forget you can support the project by using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com slash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, YouTube, iTunes and other portals. <laughs>